Good evening. It's good to be with you this evening. It's always a pleasure to come down and see um, your community and what you've become. I was at Regent at the same time as Chris, and I remember the days when the idea of this community was just a dream. Um, so it's always very excited to see what God has done among you over the years um, and the fine place that you've become. And we're going to be looking at Luke 9, uh, verses 10 to 17 this morning. Um, this is a very famous story, um, one of the versions of the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and obviously goes very well with our Old Testament text of the feeding of Israel in the desert. And one of the surprising things about this story is that it turns up in all four of the Gospels, which suggests that all the Gospel authors think it tells us something essential about the way that Jesus is at work in the world. So if you're able to stand, please do as we read um, God's Gospel message. When the apostles returned, they, were returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, the need for food is a universal human experience. It's essential for us to get through our day it provides the energy which allows us to keep going and to live out the dreams and ambitions that we have going on in our lives. And so while in the West, in these days, we live in a place where food is mostly plentiful, and instead of struggling with finding food, most of us struggle with eating good quality food, I'm sure you've all experienced skipping a meal on occasion and the accompanying hunger that comes from that. But of course, at every other moment throughout the history of the world, skipping a meal generated a lot of fear because hunger wasn't easily solved, wasn't easily got rid of. And so the fear was that if you skipped a meal now, maybe there wouldn't be food at the meal that's coming up soon down the road. And maybe there'll be no food tomorrow and no food the day after that. And obviously, that leads to a very serious situation. And so when we think about this crowd that has followed Jesus out into the wilderness, into the desert, and we can see that they are in a serious situation. They're hungry, and they have a very long walk 
with a significant expenditure of energy before they will eat again. And I think the seriousness of this situation and for people is reflected in the fact that this is not the only recording of people needing to be fed in the scripture. We've obviously heard one of the other really famous ones, um, Israel in the desert, um, as they wait for God to provide manna and quail and water so that they can continue their journey with them. And that story is so important that it not only gets told in Exodus 16, as we heard um, just a few moments ago, but it also gets retold in Numbers 11. But we also see in the Old Testament, as we reflect on people being fed miraculously, that Elijah needed it in 1 Kings 17. He's fed by ravens and then by a widow. And again, we see that Elisha needs to be fed in 2 Kings 4, along with 100 other men who he helps provide food for. So there's something about food that it speaks to a very deep part of the human person. It's a very basic and essential human instinct. So as I've been reflecting, our place in the global economic system protects us mostly from hunger. And mostly that's just the basis of the luck of where we were born. But that doesn't mean that the fear of scarcity that is tied to hunger is absent from our lives. In fact, our entire economic system is based on the idea of scarcity. Which of course is why we pay so much attention to the economic system and how it's doing and usually we vote according to who we think will deal with it best. So we depend on the economic system for our jobs and our resulting paychecks. And the economic system therefore sets up for us all kinds of assumptions about how the world works. And in response to those assumptions, we develop a certain set of lifestyles. And it's kind of a cycle that goes on there as we live in the midst of that system. But I want to suggest today that the feeding of 5,000 points to something different about the kingdom of God. The way that Jesus works in the world is not based on the assumption of scarcity. It's not based on the assumption that is behind our economic system and which finds its way into every aspect of our lives. And that means today we're being called by this text to live in a different way in the world. To live without a fear of scarcity and instead step into the abundance of the kingdom of God. But in order to do this well, we need to think a little more clearly about how the economic system works. Um, which means we have to do a little bit of complicated thinking, but hopefully you'll join me on that journey. So originally humans had a barter system. I grew rice, you grew chicken, I gave you some rice, you gave me some chicken. We could have both have rice and chicken for dinner. We both benefit. So the most basic element of the system is a good one. It's a communally beneficial aspect to trade. We share the good things we can make in order that everyone in the community can be better off. Now, the problem with bartering is that it's a little difficult to get the timing right. How can I guarantee that I'll have enough rice when you have your chicken available? So over time, people invented money. And money allowed us to place a numerical value um, on what was in the system. So I can put something into the system and receive some money, and I can then use the money at another time to take things out of the system by returning the money to the system. And obviously, each person relates to the system in that manner. And that was a very clever invention, 
but it also has a certain downside to it because it increasingly abstracts us from the system. It degrades a little bit that community feel um, in which me and you share our chicken and rice. Instead, I no longer know the person who sells me the stuff. I don't see the guy who puts it on the sh shelf. Um, I don't see the guy, I see a guy at the checkout, but it's always someone different and I don't get to know them in any personal way. And so we become abstracted, somewhat separated from the community that produces the goods that we develop. And so that means that it becomes very easy for us to be manipulated by the economic system. What we see is, we see whether we have enough money now, enough stuff in our wallet, so that we can buy the things that we want now. And we worry far less about whether other people have enough stuff. We've lost that communal sense of the sharing that was initially in the barter system. And so the economic system, therefore, draws us into this wrong assumption about the world that goods are scarce and therefore we're in competition with everyone else about those goods. And of course that causes us then to live in a way that damages ourselves and our communities. So let's look at those assumptions in lots of detail. So the first assumption I'm suggesting that we face is that what we want is scarce. There's not enough of it. Both now and in the future, there's not going to be enough of it. And as a response to that scarcity, we live um, in fear. And fear causes us to do three things. First, we grasp. We grasp at what we want, or we grasp at what will allow us to get what we want at a later date. The way the system works is we don't even have to know what we're going to need in 10 years' time. We just know that if we've got a very large sum in our bank account, we'll be okay when that time comes. And so we're always trying to manipulate the system so that we can improve our position in, in the aim of getting to a future um, goal. The fear also causes us to compete with others. We compete with everyone because they might get the thing that we want. And it might be the last of that thing and so we're always in this race with everyone else. And our best chance of getting the things we want is to squash their ability to get those things. And as you probably can easily see, that's not very good for the community we live in. It's not good to be in that competitive spirit with everyone. And it leads us into another idea that we can demonstrate that we're winning the race by buying stuff or experiences. And the third thing that the fear can lead us to is that we hoard. So in order to overcome scarcity in the future, we keep too much stuff now um, in order that we will be protected from that scarcity. And obviously that's the direct opposite of the generosity that I think the Christian community is supposed to demonstrate. So that's the fear of scarcity causes us to grasp, compete, and hoard. Now, the other aspect, other assumption that our economic system pushes onto us is that people are what they have bought. So, we construct our idea of who we should be by buying certain things. And I think the greatest company at doing this in the last 20 years has been Apple, who not only produced some very good products,
but also advertise themselves as being the kind of product that was used by artistic, alternative-type thinking people. And so what we do when we buy their products is we not only buy how it works, but we also buy that image for ourselves a little bit. And of course, that's the way that marketing works all the time. It sells us a vision of how our life could be in the future. And sometimes that's very valuable, but a lot of time it's pretending that our life can be better than it is if we only own this thing. And so marketing finds it very easy to manipulate our vision of the life that we're living. So the problem with our engagement with the economic system is the fear that we experience because of the scarcity that is always present in it. And so that leads us to live in a way where we grasp after other stuff and experiences. We compete for others, for those things, and we hoard them um, so that we are protected in the future. And this all leaves us as people who are then defined by what we can accumulate. And we have no real sense of when we have enough. We have no sense of when our need is fulfilled. Instead, we just have desires, we have wants that we have to continue to fill. And so, what has happened in our society is that the market system, which at one time served community by helping people share the things they produced, has become we'll call it the market society, where everything is given a numerical value and that we live according to that idea of scarcity at all times. So instead of, instead of the market system serving us, now it rules us and tells us how the world is. It tells us that the world has a scarcity problem and that we need to be fearful. And so that idea then slips out of the way we engage in the economic sphere of life and it enters into everything else that we do. And one of the ways in which I see this is I see it in the way we dream about who our kids will become. We dream that they will grow up and that they will excel and they will do well. And then we start to quantify that. So we're looking for them to get good grades, to be top of their class, we're looking at them to be involved in lots of activities in which they do well. And we hope if they continue to excel for sort of 20 years, perhaps then they can get a good job. And if we're really lucky, after they get a jo good job, they'll perhaps pay off their mortgage before they die. And I really hope there's more to life than paying off your mortgage before you die. But you see how subtle the confusion is. Of course we want our children to do well. We want them to excel, but we want them to become fully human, not to get good jobs that pay them well so they can pay off their mortgage. And so the subtlety of the misdirection that can be caused by the fear of scarcity can really influence the way that we live in our life. And so as I've suggested, I think the kingdom of God works differently, and it's shown by this text in Luke 9, and God's um, supplying the people with food in the desert and his various other miracles where he's helped people have enough. And so instead of understanding ourselves as living in a world of scarcity, we're supposed to understand ourselves as being part of a community which has been abundantly provided for. 
And because we've been abundantly provided for, then we can give generously in order to build other people up from what we have. Or we can engage in the hospitality that was mentioned earlier. We have enough. God gives abundantly. Therefore, we can be hospitable to other people. We can give ourselves away. And so I think when we dig deeply into what is going on in the feeding of 5,000, that's what we see Jesus as modeling. What has occurred in this story is that the 12, in Luke at least, returned from being on mission. It's the first time Jesus sent them out. And obviously the 12 are representing the new Israel, the new community which Jesus is forming. And when they went out on mission, they were told to take nothing with them. And so on their mission, they trusted that God would provide food and shelter for them in each place they went to. And so we have this interesting situation where they've experienced God acting as their divine benefactor and providing all the resources they need. And now they've come back to Jesus and they have no expectation of the dramatic miracle which is about to occur. It always encourages me that the disciples are such slow learners. And so the miracle speaks one message to the disciples. But obviously it's done for the crowds. Um, because Jesus sees the crowds and he has compassion on them because he sees their needs. But the crowds are really a bit of a pain to Jesus. The point of what he's doing here is he's withdrawing with his, his 12 disciples so that they can have a discussion about how their first mission went. This is supposed to be a private time, a time when they can, when they can discuss how it went, what they could have done better, learn some things, get some teaching, but instead, the crowds have followed Jesus out, and they've become a bit of an inconvenience. Um, but Jesus has compassion on them, so he teaches them, and then he provides food for them. And what we need to note about the crowds in the way they develop over Luke's gospel is that in the beginning, Jesus is very popular, but of course, by the end, it's the crowd who is shouting for him to be crucified. So increasingly, the crowd is moving away from being supporters of Jesus. And that should remind us that God, Jesus' provision here is not just for the people who are in his club. Jesus has abundant provision also for people who potentially will become his enemies. And I always think that Jesus' response here is a little bit interesting. He provides just food for them. I, I imagine Jesus could have provided a Hilton Hotel with a nice mini bar in each room, packed with kosher products, and, you know, a Gideon Bible in every bedside table. But Jesus obviously assesses the crowd's needs and sees what he needs to supply that they can continue on in their lives. If he gives them food, they will have the strength to walk home or walk to wherever the local motel is, and they'll be able to continue their lives. And the thing that we notice then is that the quantity of the food is overwhelming. From five loaves of bread and two fish, at least 5,000 people are fed, and there's plenty left over. You'll notice again how the 12 baskets act symbolically. God's abundance is enough for the whole people of God. God takes care of everyone's need, even if they aren't necessarily in his camp. So as I suggested, God's economy works on a different principle 
from the fear and scarcity we have imbibed from our economic system. It is based on the abundant generosity which begins with God's gift of Jesus to us. God has given in such an abundant way that it changes how we interact with the world. We never have to worry again about whether enough will turn up. We can take more risks in our service of God because he has been enough for us. We can go out like the disciples at the beginning of chapter 10 without anything and know that God will provide for us. We can stop worrying about maintaining our economic position in society because it neither defines us nor defines the type of future we have because we are with Jesus. Instead, we can go out into the world and go about the business of building God's kingdom, doing good, bringing peace, healing people, building community, giving of ourselves in whatever way God asks because we now know that we can trust God and he will provide for us when we are in need. So our focus can stay on Jesus. We need, no longer need to be concerned with providing for ourselves because there is no scarcity with God. There is no limit to what he can give or what he can bring about. But there is a very important point to note here. God's abundant provision is for the people who are fulfilling his mission. It's not so we can enrich ourselves. God isn't interested in us having bigger houses or nicer cars. He's interested in supplying what we need so we can fulfill the mission. And so there's a dynamic quality to this process. There's a flow it's hard to know what that flow is of, but it flows from God to us, and we return some of what God gives us to God in worship, prayer, and service, and we give the rest of what is left over, we share with our church community and with the community that's outside the church. And in doing that, we invite others to come and share in this abundance that we have discovered. And so this works just like the Israelites who are collecting in the desert, collecting the manna. The Israelites could only collect enough for one day. They all, if they kept it overnight, it went rotten and wasn't good. You can't store what God gives you. He gives you enough for your daily bread. And so one of my contentions in life is that sometimes when we wonder why we don't experience more of God, it's because we aren't out there about God's mission. He provides plenty of himself when we're on mission with God. When we want God to provide comfortable, warm spaces where we can be safe, God's far less interested in being there. Obviously, there's moments in our life when we need to rest and have healing, but Mostly, God isn't interested in us being comfortable. So as you can tell, the theme of God's provision goes way beyond the food that we started with. Food is such a basic need that it helps explain this principle of the way that God provides abundantly. But it's just a way that he demonstrates how he can intervene in every facet of our lives. 
so that the entire way that we live under King Jesus is to be built on these ideas that we are not alone. Jesus is with us. Jesus provides for us more than we need. And therefore, we can give ourselves away in self-giving love. And obviously, scarcity aims to have the opposite cycle. Scarcity makes us fearful, and our fear is because we are alone and feel abandoned. But Jesus' presence with us reverses that cycle. And so I think Jesus is inviting us to come closer to him today in several ways. He wants us to encounter him in this scripture and to encounter him as, he, as we come to the communion table where once again Jesus says, I have fed you. He is drawing us deeper into that kingdom where he provides abundantly. And so I'm going to suggest a few responses that we can consider as we come to eat from Jesus. The first option is to reject the fear of scarcity. Perfect love drives out all fear, and Jesus embodies that love. So the next time you feel yourself being fearful with regards to scarcity, or you see yourself responding with grasping, competing, or hoarding, stop yourself and realign yourself with Jesus. Enter into his abundant provision. Jesus has the power to release us from that script that we've learned about scarcity and to change the way that we think about our lives. Secondly, we could respond to Jesus by considering where we get our identity. So instead of placing our identity in the things that we can buy, we are invited to trust Jesus with who we are. We leave behind all the image management techniques of our society and instead trust that becoming fully human, being like Jesus, makes us both joyful and appealing. After all, everyone likes Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus invites us to be more generous. And obviously we can be generous in many ways more than just being financially generous. There's all kinds of ways in which we can give our time, energy, emotions, our talents. Usually generosity is only limited by our imagination. And so perhaps we need to ask Jesus how he wants us to be generous today or tomorrow if we can't complete it before we go to bed tonight. And fourthly, I think we need to learn, and this is finally, we need to learn to call on Jesus early. Fear of scarcity is rooted in our sense of being alone. But Jesus is always with us by the Spirit. We are never abandoned. But so often our lives get so busy that we aren't aware that Jesus is there with us. And so we need to learn to call on Jesus when the pressure mounts. So the next time you have to deal with a difficult boss or a difficult conversation with your spouse or the child that's acting out, we can ask early on for an increased patience and a greater sense of wisdom. Jesus has a far better idea how to solve the problems that come up in our lives than we do. 
And the next time you need more energy for a task, you ask Jesus for it. Or you need the courage to have a difficult conversation, you ask Jesus to give you a little more courage. I'm reminded when we talk like this of the text in James that says, you do not have because you do not ask. There's this impetus where we need to return to Jesus and ask him for the things that we need so that the scarcity, the aloneness can be rooted out of our lives. So the invitation this morning is to enter more deeply into Jesus' abundant provision. And it's not this morning, it's this evening. But that's the problem with preaching usually in the morning. (laughs) Jesus is with us, and because he is with us, he has changed the very way the world works. He's changed everything about the way the world works. And he now gives us the opportunity to give ourselves away. And so as we come and we respond in song and in communion, let us consider the ways in which Jesus says, that we need to drive out the societal script of scarcity and the ways in which we can invite Jesus deeper into our lives to provide in ways that he hasn't yet. Let me pray for us. Father God, we are thankful for your abundant provision, that there is no situation that is beyond your power. And we ask that you would come to us now and that you would help us rid ourselves of the script of scarcity which causes fear and which so easily entangles us in the culture that we live in. And we ask that you would help us to move more fully into the life of the King Jesus, the one who provides for us, the one who is with us, who never leaves us alone. And so speak to us by your Spirit of how we should respond this morning to Jesus. We ask that this spirit would be at work in us, changing us and helping us to see how we can live differently in each situation of our life. We ask all this in the generous name of Jesus. Amen.